0: this is the coolest show brought to you by hip-hop caucuses think 100 it's the coolest show you know keep the culture connected it's the coolest show you know in your ear yeah respect the expert level information entertainment education rev here we got you covered as you hit your destination climate rules everything around me crazy for those who lost just close your eyes and just train open your third eye now the world is your off coolest coolest show you know it's the hip-hop cool. Everyone, welcome to the coolest show today. I have with me Tori Choi, and she is just a phenomenal activist doing some amazing work. She's obviously um, she's from Hong Kong, and she is the founder of the space Bad Activist Collective. So, hi Tori, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to get stuck in.
0: Yeah, I'm excited for this. Conversation as well. So, off the bat, who is Toy Choi?
1: Uh, I am a climate justice activist and organizer, as you mentioned. I'm from Hong Kong, and I found myself in rainy England, um, and it's kind of my 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 place now. You know, and um, I would say that at the moment, I kind of identify as a writer, because that's kind of where most of this action is going at the moment. But, you know, besides writing, I'm very much entrenched in a lot of uh, organising here in the UK against specific fossil fuel companies, trying to put some new oil fields (laughs) where they shouldn't be. And I'm also the founder of Bad Activist Collective, as you mentioned, which is a space Tries to dismantle the guise of perfectionism in activism, whilst making sure that we are radical, intersectional, and you know, really fighting with uh, climate justice in mind. Hmm.
0: You know, Tori, when I was over there in the UK, I really, mm-hmm. you know, as you probably know, I am a I, I'm a, a fossil fuel abolitionist, and I am mm-hmm. uh, and I'm an activist, so I find myself in good trouble. Occasionally, (laughs) Um,
1: we love to see.
0: And but I loved when I came over there um, to the UK. Um, It felt just like they were they were really passionate. And and
1: Mm.
0: no no slight to my my friends and colleagues who over here in America because I know y'all throwing down and definitely Mm. there's a need for us to throw down everywhere. On this, sure. on this planet we have, but I just felt an energy. So with yeah. that, like who who is your community?
1: You know, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head with the energy there. And I do feel like the people that I'm working with in community, especially uh, an initiative that we work on called Stop Cambo. Um, they are a huge part of some of the activism that I've done in the past and continue to do. They are primarily dedicated to trying to stop <laughs> Shell from opening up some new oil fields in largely working class communities in the UK. So that's, you know, one aspect of the community that I, I I find myself in. But also, you know, coming from Hong Kong, I can't deny that that is home and it will always be home. But as I'll get to later, the political and social landscape of it is so warped and messy these days that I actually find myself in community with people, uh, from the Hong Kong diaspora, shall we say in the UK, because I haven't been home in three and a half years and that's still counting. I'm, you know, there are some civil liberties that are at stake for some of the work that I do. So a lot of the folks that I'm in community with are, are proximal to me, but also, you know, We can't deny the power of community online. I do have a lot of folks that I've connected with from all over the world who are part of the climate justice community, folks who um, a lot of them have been campaigning from the get-go from a very young age. And it's really nice to be able to share that space with them and to realize that our struggles are are united under this common goal of dismantling um, and abolishing the capitalistic white supremacist system has given rise to the climate crisis. So I feel, yeah, really blessed to be in tandem with these people.
0: Mm, no, I, and and that's and I and I feel that. And mm. you know, when I was there, um, I had went to. It was there was this pre COP uh, twenty six mm. um, event that take that took place. Um, yeah. In in Edinburgh. And mm. I never forget that it was it was there, and a lot of the Stop Cambo people were yeah. were there, and it was like Ram joining. Showing I was yeah. I'm, I'm I'm with that. So we were I was with. I, yeah, I, I literally <laughs> didn't I did I actually didn't go inside um, to my session because I was so felt so in, in solidarity with those outside. Mm, yep, and at that time yep. I didn't know much about Stop Cambo. I was actually I mean I had to kind of learn on the fly there on, yeah, the, on the streets right, yeah. was the best place to learn about yeah, something on the sure. streets. But um, what was interesting is that, that 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 climate event, they invited the CEO of Shell um, mm. to, to, to speak. Yeah. And it was when someone asked me later on about how I felt about that, I told them, I says, you know, if we if we were back in the days of slavery, mm. and you were having an abolitionist meeting, would you invite the slave trader to the abolitionist meeting? Yep. And if you wouldn't invite that slave trader, then why are you inviting the CEO of Shell?
1: You know, that's right on the the nail there because these companies, these people in charge, of these companies are culpable. You know, they have murdered people, largely people from the global South as well, uh, for protesting their extractivist ways and is literally like sitting in a room with a murderer, you know, mm-hmm. yet people think that they deserve a space at the table. And and actually, a lot of the organizing that I did with Stop Cambo was to kick Ben Van Bierden, who's the CEO of Shell, out of these spaces, specifically a climate summit, That happened before COP. And they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. And so we protested that. And it's just ridiculous to me that there's still so much audacity in people saying that these folks are justified in these spaces. And unsurprisingly, Ben Ben Van Bearden, he sat there, and he just lied about all of these promises that Shell was making and you know he even had the um the guts to say oh well we're not gonna switch to renewables unless you guys buy more oil and gas Mm -hmm. and this is a Mm -hmm. man man. who took a a pay rise of 8.6 million pounds in the last quarter so I'm thinking you know it's not everyday people that should be paying for this transition if we're going to talk about paying for it for you to stand on stage and point the blame at those most marginalized is just you know and apparently uh, I read somewhere that he told people to eat seasonally to mitigate the effects of climate change and he he how to go at his chauffeur for buying strawberries in January <laughs> I mean this guy <laughs> is just a joke you know so uh, yeah to me having people in these spaces it's violent Having them anywhere where they can have a platform, it's violent. And uh, the fact that people uh, continue to invite them to these spaces says a lot more about where the money's going, you know, than what they're actually fighting for.
0: No, Troy, you're hitting on it. I mean, I want folks who are listening right now to understand that a lot of times you you feel very safe Mm. in this climate movement, and particularly for Indigenous Uh, Black, brown, people of color um, who are throughout this world, Um, they don't feel safe. As a matter of fact, they're being killed. I know the foster industry, the grandmother who was killed in South Africa, obviously. Mm. um, There's many of those who were from in Colombia and throughout the the greater South um have been have been have been killed i mean and it's and it's happening the amazon i can go on and on and on right um clearly and literally um that's a different side to this movement that mm-hmm. you're not hearing and so that when you invite them and you're trying to do your think tank type of way it's of creating your movement yeah mm. it's, it is it is utterly utterly disrespectful mm. Tori, yeah. tell us before we get because we want to get deep in here. So, yeah, but tell us yeah, tell yeah. us about your story uh, and your role in this movement and fight.
1: I grew up in a tiny fishing town in Hong Kong, um, largely fisher folk communities, and I was, you know, it's, it's interesting because I was fortunate enough to grow up in the quote unquote countryside of Hong Kong because everyone perceives it to be a cosmopolitan city of sorts. And it is, it is, but only 25% of the land in Hong Kong is developed. And I lived in the countryside and I remember kids at school used to make fun of me for coming from the sticks, they would say, and they would call it the jungle because, you know, nobody went there and it was so far away. And I grew up in proximity to nature, but I also grew up in proximity to it being degraded. Land was reclaimed a lot of the time. See, Hong Kong has these really stringent laws about what land you can develop. So they would literally dredge up the bottom of the seafloor and dump waste in there in order to reclaim land. And Hong Kong is a city that is characterized by extremely dense population. Like we are one of the most densely populated areas on the planet. And so having a space like that where so many people um our living means that inequality is going to be rife. It was an extremely, extremely polarizing place to grow up. And I think if anything, from a very young age, even though I quote unquote knew nothing else existing in this hyper-capital capitalistic consumerist culture, and one that is characterized by having been colonized by the UK, I just it, it never sat well with me. You know, I, I grew up there and I just thought there's got to be another way to live. This isn't, this isn't normal. And so I ended up, uh, being fortunate enough to study in the UK and I made a decision as a political situation in Hong Kong got worse to stay in the UK. Um, and I kind of found myself going down different paths of environmental campaigning that had started from a very young age in Hong Kong. I mean, I can remember campaigning since I was a kid um, Mm. in in different sort of varieties. And since I've had that kind of upbringing, that perspective, it's really interesting speaking to people who come into uh, environmental campaigning as a sort of, you know, immediate like reflex of it being a wake-up call for them but I think for a lot of people especially in my community who are very vulnerable to the effects of typhoons we had some very very horrific tropical cyclones it was out of necessity and so I don't see it as something that is you know this kind of hobby so to speak it's very much a part of everything from from when I was born until now uh, so I feel as though, you know, that that perspective means that this is a sustainable fight. This is a long-term fight. This is not one that I can pick and choose and drop when I want to. Um, and that's kind of how it really all began, I'd say. Uh, and,
0: and, well, you know, you know, it's funny, you, but I just want to say, you know, we call the sticks the sticks too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: There are some similarities. I'm glad yeah, to hear well, yeah.
0: you from Mississippi, you from the sticks. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yep. We got the sticks too.
0: Oh man, that's, that's, <laughs> that's too funny.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you kind of missed a little bit, but tell us a little bit more about the colonial history for those who don't know mm. of, 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 of
1: Hong Kong. So it's, you know, it's so funny we're doing this today because today is actually the 25th anniversary of when Britain handed, handed Hong Kong back to mainland China. So it's a very, you know, it's very on topic. Hong Kong is uh, what we call a special administrative region. So in many ways, it's not its own country. It's considered a city. It's considered part of China, but not quite part of China. It's in this really weird in-between. And Hong Kong was actually colonized by the British as a result of what were called the Opium Wars. So way back when, China and Great Britain had a, a deal a, a deal in terms of consumption of opium. So they would ship opium that they had farmed in East and Southeast Asia to uh, people in China. And what happens when you send all of these drugs to China is you get people who are addicted and you get a lo- load of health problems. And there came a point where China was like, okay, no more drugs. Like You can't keep pushing us into this relationship where you know, our people are suffering tremendously. And so they, they tried to stop buying this opium, tried to, you know, stop all of it from being sent to China. And the UK turned around and went, nah, we're going to go to war over this. And so they took China to war because they didn't want to buy their drugs. And what ended up happening is they lost. China lost. And as part of that, they had to concede a territory that was considered a gateway between mainland China and the UK, and that was Hong Kong. And so Hong Kong was given to the UK and put under British rule. You know, much like many colonies, ex-colonies um, in the Global South, segregation was normalized. There was huge, huge disparity in the wealth um, that people who were local to Hong Kong were afforded. And over, you know, a 100 or so years, Eventually, part of the stipulation was that they would be returned to China. And that's caused some complications because, you know, Hong Kong is in a very dire political situation at the moment when you have what is essentially quite an authoritarian country like China trying to impose its political landscape onto a country that has been largely largely democratic. And so what we're seeing is a lot of corruption. A lot of um, people are losing their democratic right to free speech. People are getting arrested for even trying to contradict the Chinese government. I've been warned multiple times that I need to stop talking about this because I'll lose my citizenship and could be arrested. But it hasn't stopped me. I'm here. (laughs) And it's a very polarizing thing because what you end up seeing is people being sympathetic towards Britain and going, oh, well, we, it was better under British rule. And it's like, no, no, it wasn't. We're in a situation where decolonization has resulted in a huge political instability. And as a result of China being a very big global power, what we're seeing is a very uh, authoritarian transition. And both it's like, You know, two evils, right? It's not even a lesser of two evils. It's just just a mess. Um, And the situation at the moment is just so, so dire that we've seen a lot of people leaving and actually getting amnesty, leaving Hong Kong. And a lot of people were killed during the the riots the last few years. Um, And it's not somewhere I see myself going back because of that. Um, You know, they passed a national security law, which means they can send any criminal... They consider a criminal to uh, mainland China for extradition, and the perse- persecution there is far more, you know, rigorous than it is in Hong Kong. So it's it's not a it's not a good situation, and it's 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 meant that there's you know a lot of stuff going on there that climate, for instance, just isn't a priority, and I can get to that in a bit.
0: Yeah, no. Well, I just wanted to say that, you know, um, you know, for those who are listening, if you're wondering when we were recording this actually, it was um June 30th. Uh uh today and I know this is you are ever seeing what happened in you ever seeing. Nope. Testing one two. Sorry about that. <laughs>
1: it's all right.
0: And what we're, what you're talking about right now, you're real referencing what took place on July 1st, 1997, um, and when mm-hmm. Hong Kong gained independence from the UK. I just wanted to say that date now is a key date, particularly June 30th, because many folks who are listening to this will know that that is a day when the, in America, the Supreme Court over here gutted um, our regulation process. To our Environmental Protection Agency um, regarding uh, climate change and literally being able to protect ourselves to have clean air, clean water. It's also a day on a a good note, I guess, in some cases, um, where obviously Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson was, was sworn in, but. That's a whole other story, another mm-hmm. episode. But you know, <laughs> we a lot to, happening. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot going on. But in that, mm-hmm. you know, Troy, I guess that leads into one of the key things there is around mm-hmm. activism, yeah. um, and what it means to be an activist in this time. Yeah. And so, yeah. I know that in a collaborative post with Climate Words, you mm-hmm. spoke about the connect the, the contention actually surrounding the word activist. Yeah. So I guess the bottom line question for you before we kind of get into this and in, in this in lat in this lot happening moment, mm. how do you define activists?
1: Thank you. Yeah, that post got a lot of uh, interest. I think because it made people kind of question how they identified and backtrack on a few things that um, they may have considered about activism. And to me, activism at its simplest form is taking political or social action or advocating for change, whatever that might be. And to me, activism at its most basic level, I guess, is low-hanging fruit. Like activism in its concept is not a very difficult thing to do. But the discrepancies and the questions about activism become way more important and interesting to me when we start asking okay, how does an activist differ from someone who's in community with people organizing on the ground? How does activism transcend these boundaries of, you know, class and privilege and who are the people who are on the front lines of it? And how do we also question the Eurocentricity of activism being co-opted and turned into things for material gain and furthering the interests of those who are not most marginalized. And so for me, it's like, okay, we have this very basic structure, but it is not, um, it is not something that can't be tampered with, so to speak. Uh, and so a lot of the conversations I have around that are understanding that there are huge disparities in how activism is enacted and how it's charactered out and how some activists are revered more than others and given more importance than others um cults of personality is a huge problem in our movement and i can get into that a bit later but yeah
0: yeah, yeah no no well let's well, let's, well, let's 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 go there i think this is important yeah, yeah. yeah sure where we are like i would really want to hear from you this aspect what's the difference between an activist and an organizer's because obviously mm-hmm. those two things often get yeah, conflated yeah. together, but also mm-hmm. let's just keep it one hundred. What's the difference yeah. between when you either choose to be an activist or when you mm-hmm. are chosen to be an activist, or when activism chooses you when you have yeah. no choice? Let me, be, mm-hmm. let me keep it this clear. Yeah. A lot of folks do privilege who choose to be an activist because it's what right. they see things that they believe are wrong. I and mean, there right. are times for many communities when you actually don't want to be an activist. You actually right. don't really, don't really want to get involved in this, but because mm. the the fight has come to your table, you right. ain't got no choice but to fight. Right. And so you are literally chosen. You was, people were killed in your community. So you got to fight. What's yeah. the difference there in all of that?
1: Such great questions. So, you know, at its simplest answer, not, all activists are organizers. You know, and I think that's the key distinction there is that a lot of people who enact social or political change, whatever that means to them, are not in community with others and working collaboratively to dismantle systems of oppression and harm. And I think that when you look at the work that long-term organizers have done, they do this with people. They do this for the good of the cause, you know, there is no doubt at all that whatever it is with activism, a lot of it can be really performative and a lot of it can be really undermining to movements and to organizers as a whole. And I feel like the conversations that are really missing out from the dialogue, at least here in Europe, where people are trying to navigate these murky waters is this issue of choice as well that you talked about. There are a lot of people who, as you mentioned, did not have the choice to be activists or organizers for that matter. And also a lot of people who don't even see survival as something that they want to identify with activism because they don't want to attribute this sort of label to it because this is just what survival is. It's not, it's not me trying to take some form of political or social action or change like this is what survival means for my community and those kind of language barriers or rather discrepancies are things that we have to consider as well. When you see people at least here, I'd say in the global north suddenly taking on board you know the a reason to strike and to fight for climate justice, I admire folks who are willing to be part of this movement, but I also encourage people to remain open-minded about these disparities that still exist and the privileges that they may have, because you do unfortunately get folks, largely white folks, in this movement, moving through these spaces with an air of, I know what's best. My community's, you know, been in the environmental space for a long time, but they often forget what white environmentalism came from. Um, And so I really try to ask people to operate with this lens of climate justice, which sees marginalized uh, folks and people on the front lines center stage here in this this fight. Because, you know, so many great thinkers over the years have espoused that no one is free until everyone is free. I really believe that. and, And that's why we need to make sure that most marginalized folks are centered in this fight.
0: You know, Tori, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. You know, we had a former guest, Aisha Sadika, and spoke to yeah, this yeah. about two, epi- two episodes ago regarding the mm. youth climate movement and the global north being uh, made of people who have never experienced either the climate crisis or literally just the injustice of the oppression that goes along with that. And mm-hmm. so, and I, you know, I, I want to be very clear because I I, I don't want folks to, we, we want folk to be engaging. Sure. We want everyone to fight. This is the thing that I think people forget. Mm -hmm. There are many of us who are in this fight who won on one side. And this is particularly for those of us who are fighting for liberation. Mm -hmm. And those who are people who are black people or Mm -hmm. brown people, people of color. Um, I can't take off my blackness. I don't want to, to be clear. Mm -hmm. Let me be very clear on that. There's there's no want in that process. I Mm -hmm. love my blackness. But in that process, I can't take it off. Yeah. Um, And so there is no rest sometimes in that aspect. Um, And so when some of my friends who are in the movement, they tell me, they, they said, man, you know, hey, Rev, I'm going backpacking. It's too much for me. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, you know, Half I ain't going hour. backpacking yet, toy. I ain't. I can't mm-hmm. go. I don't, I haven't gone back. I haven't had time to go backpacking like that. What
1: a, what a, a, lot a of them, luxury. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, it's a luxury, and I think that's the thing here. And so, for your perspective, is that you just kind of said it. There's a danger when folks who have the literally the luxury of going backpacking at any point in time to take mm. off, to look like everybody else. There's a problem when they are leading and mm. this, I mean, well, well, let me ask you a question. Do you think there's a problem with that? If you th- oh yeah. When- oh, yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think there is because, you know, you said it like these people have the luxury of tapping out and this work is never easy. It's never something that you can just tap in and out of. It is long-term, it can be grueling. There can be a lot of joy as well and, and and you know, community in it. But when you have folks who have the liberties of switching off from, for example, the climate crisis or racial injustice, you are normalizing that behavior for everyone else as well, for those who also have the luxury of doing so. And, and we don't want to portray people as uh, disposable martyrs, so to speak. We don't want you know, our own communities to be propped up in a way where they're treated as expendable and they can just burn out until the very end. We don't want that. But what we do want is these movements to center communities that don't have the liberties of tapping out because it therefore shows other folks that they have to also do the work. Because unfortunately, and I'm sure you know this It's not surprising that most marginalized communities are often the ones pioneering the most change and doing the most organizing and really advocating for change. And everybody else, including those who are under this quote unquote privileged identity, they benefit from it, you know? So it's it's twofold there. It's like, we want to make sure that people are accountable, but we also want people to realize that when you uplift marginalized communities, you are also being uplifted. And that is something a lot of folks don't seem to acknowledge as well.
0: Mm, mm, mm. I know that's right.
1: Mm-hmm. Now,
0: <laughs> I know you co-founded the Bad Activist Collective. What mm-hmm. What is the collective? And what does it mean to be a bad activist? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the collective is made up of a group of um, young folks from all around the the globe. Uh, I mean, just reeling off the top of my mind, we've got Neil from the Bahamas. We've got Mitzi from the Philippines. I, myself, Hong Kong, UK. Julia's based in New Orleans. uh, Tammy's based in Singapore. And Domi's based in UK and Jamaica. Like, it's just a great (laughs) mix of folks who are coming together on the basis of climate justice to, really try to make sure that this movement is as intersectional as it can be, based in radical, which comes from the word root, uh, radical upbringings, to make sure that the conversations we're having are truly, you know, from the perspective of abolition, of also, you know, gender equality, queer rights, disability justice, black liberation, all of these pillars are things that we stand for. And to be a bad activist is a play on Roxanne Gay's Bad Feminists, wherein they wrote that essentially by virtue of being human, they are inherently imperfect. And we want to play off of that idea, but also reiterate that there is a level of accountability that cannot be ignored with perfectionism, which I think a lot of people co-opt here. And we really want to create this, um, you know, message of being a bad activist means being in community with those who you choose to advocate for, but also knowing that we're not expecting perfectionism, but we are expecting accountability and we are expecting this to be a long-term fight. Uh, and so, you know, our platform started largely online, but a lot of the stuff that we're doing these days are going to be uh, in real life. I mean, we're looking towards Egypt at the moment and working with local Egyptian activists on sort of regenerative wellness spaces um, for for these communities. So yeah, that's, that's bad activists in a nutshell.
0: No, okay. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So, I mean, I got so much here to cover. I just want to make sure. I actually want to take a little... A topic. I want to get to the book you're that you're yeah. writing right now, and I want yeah. to get to some other stuff. But mm. I just want to get to this you because and I because we're talking about how this and you talk about everything from your experience, which you've been working in from activism and climate mm-hmm. activism from Hong Kong activism in general. Um, just, just I guess this how how are you feeling and how are you doing right now?
1: I mean, I think you know, I'm doing pretty well, which is, is a blessing actually, because I've had a few health problems this year, but I'm, I'm making, making it out to the other side. I feel very secure actually in my community, which I think is a very grounding thing. And, you know, I'm writing a lot at the moment about mental health, specifically like Marxist perspectives of mental health and also kind of talking about eco-anxiety. And in doing so, Uh, I feel very, I actually feel very, uh, relieved and it's kind of a bit of a cathartic way to brain dump all of these things I've been feeling that are largely in response to my grievances with the Eurocentric climate movement. So I feel like, I feel like I'm, I'm going through a a stage of like release at the moment, but yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling good though. I feel very, very, uh, secure in, the, the folks that I'm around and the people that I'm working with and some of the projects that I'm working on.
0: Well, that makes me very happy to hear that. I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> to hear that. And, and the reason why it makes me happy, let me tell you, this, this is why Tori mm-hmm. is because I feel a lot of people are burnout in this. movement. Mm-hmm. I believe this movement itself is toxic and unsustainable yeah, yeah. and it's hurting. It's actually killing people who are trying to fight for their own, Communities, yeah. and we're constantly asking our oppressors for not only for resources and infrastructure, um, but we're constantly asking them in a position to almost just to plead with them for us to do this work. And so, mm. I, I I just feel, and I've seen, I'm, you know, I'm I'm obviously getting a little long and tooth on this side here, Tori, mm-hmm. but been around, and so in that. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel that one of the things here in this movement is that I, I plead with the, those who are coming up, those mm. younger activists, so to speak, or younger mm-hmm. freedom fighters. I, yeah. I, 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 I plead with them to take care of their wellness, yeah, take care of themselves, because mm-hmm. this movement will destroy you and cast you away. And yeah. you will look back and they will keep on doing what they're doing.
1: Right, right. Sustainability is a mindset as well. It's not just hmm. doing your What do you recycling. mean when you say that,
0: actually? Explain that.
1: Well, sustainability to me is about longevity, right? And if you are someone that is going all in, you know, putting everything that you've got into this, you're going to burn out and you're going to burn out quick. And, you you know, you can tell the people who have been this for a short amount of Time compared to those who have been in this for the long run. I mean, like people who've been in this for the long run, that is like, you know, that is a statement in and of itself. But for a lot of young people who go in with all of this energy and they're like, I'm so angry, I've suddenly woken up to the injustices of the world. And you're kind of like, okay, you know, <laughs> glad you're here. And then they're like, oh, I give up and throw the towel in. That creates so much fragmentation and that creates this expectation um, of what other people need to do or they need to go all in or else they tap out and they burn out. And for me, you know, reiterating that sustainability is a mindset is a reminder to people that this is a long-term fight. This is not something that is going to change overnight. Sometimes we do have, you know, monumental changes, but my encouragement to people is to make sure that they are doing this sustainably, that they consider this something that they do until the rest of their life.
0: Hmm. Hey man, You know, down south, I'm, I'm from down south over here in America. Mm-hmm. where we say preach. <laughs> 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 Go ahead. Yes. You better say that word there, Tor. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And I want to say yes, because, you know, Sustainable Brooklyn spoke to mm-hmm. this in episode Actually, on this on the episode of this season, they yeah, spoke yeah. about how sustainability includes resisting colonial structures, so that we can find well-being, joy, and ultimately healing. Ooh. yeah! And in yeah. this in so this true. process, so hey, true. I know. Yes, yes, yes. So true. So you're writing a book in the midst mm-hmm. of all this, and it is titled "It's Not Just You." That, mm-hmm. will be, that will be released in 2023. What's the book mm-hmm. about? And what inspires you to write it? And I know there's a, a part of the book that deals with ec- eco-anxiety.
1: So It's Not Just You has a multitude of meanings. Uh, and it's framed as a, a book that is about navigating eco-anxiety. And the reason why I say navigate is because that allows you to pull it apart to understand where it applies and who it doesn't apply to. To understand where it came from, navigating is about asking questions, uh, and that's what I want to do because you know this eco-anxious experience has suddenly erupted in the mainstream, and I'm going, oh, okay, who's it for? <laughs> where did it come from? What does it actually mean? Um, and so for me, it's it's an element of interrogating that, but it's not just you as a reminder that you're not alone in your struggles. Uh, it is, you know, um, a reminder of solidarity and commonality. It is a call as well for more intersectional perspectives in the climate movement, because it's not just you. There are loads of other people who see the world and experience the world through different lenses. It's not just you is a reminder that there are systems that are making people very unwell. Um, And so, you know, we need to deflect from this idea that it's all about the individual. We are the reason for us being sick. No, 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 no. It's a, it's a farce. Like that's not true. And so it tries to interrogate the systems that are making people unwell and dismantle this archetype neoliberal construct of the self who is autonomous, who is independent, who is hardworking, you know, all of these things that have been made by capitalism and it tries to question the commodification of care as well, uh, in our societies. And it's not just you is a reminder that we need to strive for community care as the antidote to this epidemic of mental illness that is in the forefront of society. Um, And so, you know, I wrote this book because it's something that's very near and dear to me as someone who has had mental health illness my whole life. I have started using this book as a way to interrogate how much of this mental health illness was ascribed to me by systems that did not understand or did understand how it was making me unwell. And so I really wanted to create a space to question this idea as well of eco-anxiety that has become understood to a lot of white folks in the movement. Um, it's not to say it's invalid entirely, it's just it needs deeper exploration.
0: But, but can you can you go into that a little bit because I, I think that people are having and they're seeing that kind of eco-anxiety or that climate anxiety.
1: Mm-hmm. And it,
0: it has, to be honest, it's, it's kind of overwhelmingly been kind of this thing that it really is based in white fragility and some mm-hmm. aspects. So yeah. let, let's, let's go into that a little bit. because when, And one thing I just want to say, thank you so much for being this transparent. I think that that's why these conversations are so important.
1: Thank you for um, Because what we me.
0: find out here is that there, are, there are so many of us who who need to hear from us, mm. um, and they and they think that they're they're going about it by themselves. So I just want to say right, thank you right. for that.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, the reason why I I am interrogating eco anxiety is because when I saw these perspectives of who was eco anxious in the mainstream, they're largely the same people who look the same who said the same stuff, and they would often talk about, oh, the way to cure your eco-anxiety is to do some yoga, do some meditation, buy a candle, go to a protest. You know, very individualistic solutions for ultimately things that are very systemic problems. And it prompted me to really think about eco-anxiety, and I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm worried about the future, but it's not as simple as worrying about the future, which is what eco-anxiety suggests because you hear a lot of people who talk about eco-anxiety being like, oh my God, I'm so afraid of the future, like, ah, doomsday, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I'm not just afraid of the future. I'm kind of mourning the past as well. And I'm also experiencing some difficulties right now in the present. But why do those discussions never get shared? And why are people not talking about it that way? And it's then that I realized that eco-anxiety, much like white fragility, is the centering of white feelings when in actuality there are people who have been struggling for a lot longer and who have been on the front lines and who haven't had the liberties of, you know, switching off from the climate crisis. Eco-anxiety for me is also akin to when there are people saying the climate crisis is finally here. It's like for you maybe, but for frontline communities, it's been here for a long time. And my my gripes with eco-anxiety as well are also kind of you know, this reality that it can transcend into what people call climate doomism, which is this idea that we're destined to fail, that humanity is, you know, not going to exist. And this climate doomism is something that we see a lot operated by authoritarian forces as a way to hoard resources, to create green initiatives that are actually oppressing marginalized communities further. And what you have is you, you, you know, you have eco anxious people who can easily become climate doomers. And this mentality is one that is going to harm people who are most marginalized because it is this like anxiety of xenophobia and, of you know, like for instance, climate refugees, are we going to see the disenfranchised as people who are, you know, are, are humans, or are we going to see them as threats to our own security? Uh, and I worry that this eco-anxious discourse is along that line, you know, going towards that, that way. Of course, there are people who do care and who are experiencing fear of the future, but this book really tries to interrogate the temporal scale of emotions and also question, you know, what we can learn from largely communities of color in their long-term campaigning and how that has built resilience. And as the climate justice writer, Mary Hegler wrote, climate change isn't the first existential threat as a black woman in America. I Yes, I do worry about the climate crisis, but my community has stood the test of time in the way that it is campaigned because it didn't have a choice now, to the white folks who are experiencing eco anxiety, you have to find ways to build resilience because you're taking up the air in the room that we breathe. And I think that that is something that you know I, I really want to encourage um, to those listening to think about if they are white listeners who have eco anxiety, like really sit with that and think: Are you taking up energy and space uh, when other folks may be trying to express? some of the discontent from long-term systemic oppression.
0: My, my, my. (laughs) I'll tell you, that's a a word. (laughs) I'll tell you. Listen, as as we conclude here, as a community, it's very important to be clear about your needs and what Mm. you offer. And so what do you need from this community to help? you know, what, 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 what can we do to support you? What would you like us to do to support you? Um, and, and how can people follow and and contact you?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I always believed that there's so much that we can gain from community if we work together. And I always encourage people to build coalitions and find solidarity with people who are experiencing, um, oppression as well. And I think the reason why I say this is because I live in a country where there is a lot of disunity where people don't see, for instance, the strikes that are happening from union workers on the streets as a climate justice issue. And it is, it is an, it is a climate justice issue. And so whatever community I come across, I encourage people to like reach across the aisle you know, work with other folks who are campaigning because your fight is their fight and vice versa. Um, and so for me, just leaving those messages of coalition building, of solidarity, I think is is, is so important to me. Uh, as for finding me, I am online. <laughs> I'm spending less time online these days, uh, which has actually been really, really nice because it means I've spent a lot more time with people in real life. Um, but I am online on Instagram. At Tori Choi underscore, T O R I T S U I underscore. There we go. I can spell my name. Um, and yeah. And of course, for anyone who has any questions or wants to get in touch, I'm info at ToriChoi.com on
0: email. Amazing. Thank you so much, mm-hmm. Tori. And Thank that is our you, guest man. today. It is climate and bad activist, Tori Choi. <laughs> <Tory. laughs> And I am Ravier with your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you, Tori. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to repeat. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.